So today's sermon is, don't stop praying until you're forever healed. Don't stop praying until you're forever healed. And just in case you don't know what the second half of that title means, you're not forever healed until you're in heaven, okay? So in other words, don't stop praying here in this life on earth ever. That's the main message of this sermon today as we take a look at learning from Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, a brief kind of just brushing over a couple chapters from Isaiah and talk a little bit about Isaiah today. My first point today, as you can see in the sermon notes leading into the scripture, is that prayer, prayer is the axis of faith and faithful living. Prayer is the axis of faith and faithful living. In other words, you, in your faith life, you and your soul, wherever you are right now, you need to start revolving around a life of prayer, and prayer is your ongoing communion with and hearing from God. Prayer is the axis of faith and faithful living. Um, I read about a young boy who was sent to his room because he had been bad. Now, none of that would ever happen here in Starkville, but in wherever this was, this boy had been bad. He was sent to his room. A short time later, he came out to his mom and said, Mom, I've been thinking about what I did, and I said a prayer. And his mom said, well, that's good. If you pray God to make you a good boy and better, God can help you with that. And the young boy said, oh, no, no, no. I didn't ask him to help me be good. I asked him to help you be better to me. <laughs> so a question of what are you praying for? And... In Solzhenitsyn's great book, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, there is the Christian, you know, there at the, at the gulag, Alyosha. Uh, Alyoshka endures all the horrors of that prison camp, but he is forever daily faithful. And, and one day when Alyoshka is praying with his eyes closed, Ivan notices and scoffs at him and says, prayers won't help you get out of here, brother. And opening his eyes, Alyoshka says, I do not pray to get out of prison. I pray to do God's will where he has placed me. I pray to do God's will where he has placed me. In the Shorter Catechism, we learn and our children learn from learning the Shorter Catechism, you probably did growing up, that prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of all the mercies God gives to us, great is thy faithfulness indeed. So prayer is the axis of faith and faithful living. You cannot live well and faithfully unless you are praying without ceasing. We open that up from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in our call to worship. What is God's will for you? It's for you to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all situations, in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
John Bunyan puts it this way. You know, the way he puts things so bluntly. I love this. John Bunyan says this, either prayer will lead you to cease from sin or sin will entice you not to pray. <laughs> it's going to go one of two ways, right? Either, either prayer is going to lead you away from sin or sin is going to tempt you away from praying. You got a basic choice there, brother, sister. Uh, pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says. And Jesus says in his introduction to the parable of the persistent widow. You remember this, Luke 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, Luke says, Jesus taught them this so that they would continue to pray and not become discouraged. And then he gives the parable of the persistent widow going, you know, bugging the judge until the judge finally responds. And Jesus says, if, if a bad judge will eventually respond, don't you think your father in heaven who loves you, has made you, saved you, called you, is going to listen to you and respond to your prayers? Pray without ceasing. William Culber, uh, Culberson, who was uh, chaplain of the U.S. Senate at one point, said, keep praying, but be thankful that God's answers are wiser than your prayers. Thank God that he doesn't give you everything you ask for. Can you imagine if God gave you everything you asked for when you were 8 or 12 or 18 or, by the way, 88? We ask for some crazy stuff that we ought not to get, right? But what about this praying without ceasing? Well, you know, you're not constantly, you don't, believe me, as a pastor, let me advise you, do not drive with your eyes closed. Although your statistics might be about the same nowadays out on the road, but do not do that. But, but like Martin Luther says, there's no Christian who does not have time to pray without ceasing. You say, well, Martin Luther, I'm busy a lot. I'm doing lots of things. And he says, and what I would say to you is, look, you constantly can be speaking to God even as you're doing other things, right? You're going to have a stream of consciousness. Why not direct that into communion with God and let God direct you? Because you know prayer is supposed to be a lot more listening than us telling God what's going on and how things ought to be. God knows everything, and he's your heavenly father. So prayer is the axis of faith and faithful living. And as Barclay puts it, when we pray, we remember three things. The love of God that wants the best for us. The wisdom of God that knows what is best for us. And the power of God that can and will accomplish what is best for us. The love of God that wants the best for us, the wisdom that knows what is best for us, and the power to make it happen. That's the God to whom you pray. He has all of that. So prayer is the axis of faith and faithful living. And then as we prepare to move towards our scripture today, let me tell you, that's the practical application today about the prayer being the axis of faith and faithful living. We're also going to talk today briefly, let me just frame this for you, because this is really important as we move through Isaiah. Isaiah chapters 36 through 39, you can see this, I have this in the notes for you. I wrote out, hopefully, a somewhat simplified version of basically uh, key commentary points that I would make about where we are in Isaiah. 
this week and at least next week, in the middle of Isaiah, chapters 36 through 39, and Hezekiah's faithfulness and failures. Hezekiah has big swings, ups and downs, are the axis of the book of Isaiah and the prophecies. Okay, And as I put down this for you, I'll just uh, note these, and you've got them in your notes. Uh, chapters 36 through 39 are the axis dividing Isaiah 1 through 35 okay, from 40, chapter 40 through 66. If you know anything about Isaiah, hopefully you've been reading it as we preach through this year, you know there's a big difference and a big change when you get to Isaiah chapter 40. This is the dividing transition part. It's centering the seven prophetic cycles of Isaiah. Remember, I've talked about the seven prophetic cycles. He's going through seven cycles the same way later the book of Revelation goes through the seven cycles. Okay, Same thing here. Um, it, it's the middle. It's, it's in the transition of those. It's contrasting Isaiah's, or excuse me, Hezekiah's highs and lows as the final exhibit of former days, Jerusalem and Zion. In Isaiah, there's a big difference between in the former days and in the latter days. This is the final exhibit from the former days. Um, contrasting the stories of God's protection of Jerusalem from Assyria. You're going to see this in what I read in Isaiah 38, verse 6, the promise of that, which then is actuated back in, I know this is confusing, but 36 and 37 happened after 38 and 39, historically. We'll go back to that next week. God is going to protect Jerusalem from Assyria. But then with the final straw leading to the future fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, Jerusalem will survive Assyria, but will fall to Babylon later. That's what we're going to hear in this prophecy from Isaiah 39 at the very end, which bridges into what's going on with 40 and after. Confirming the message that even the best of former days, Zion and David's line, are not the Savior. That is the big message. That's one of the big messages of Isaiah. Even a good king in the line of David who takes out the high places and tries to restore faithful worship in, in Judah is not the Savior, and he's fallible. We're going to need a much better David than that. We're going to need a much better David than that. And then connecting the gospel prophecies of Back in the first part of Isaiah, Emmanuel, the root and the shoot of Jesse, uh, the better David, the better son, with the later gospel prophecies about the son and the servant who dies for our sins and is raised again to bring about the latter days, the new Zion. So don't get a headache about that, but I do want you to be aware of this as you read through Isaiah, what's going on. Now, let's open up. Isaiah chapter 38, and we'll read some of the first verses here, and then go to Isaiah 39. Isaiah 38, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah, remember he's a king, king of Judah in Jerusalem. He's a good king, pretty good king. Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. 
And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to Jehovah, to Yahweh, to the Lord, and said, Please, O Yahweh, please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in, in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. In other words, the God who made lasting covenant with David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. That is Jerusalem. Um, then there's a sign with time being moved back. We won't read that right now. And then uh, Isaiah also, the book of Isaiah includes basically a psalm from Hezekiah. And I do want to highlight a couple verses here. Uh, in Isaiah 38, verse 17. This is kind of revealing both the weakness of Hezekiah that leads into the next chapter, as well as God's grace. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Don't you love that line? That's what's going to be accomplished in the second half of Isaiah, or at least what is prophesied about Jesus' is coming. You have cast all my sins behind your back. And then simply because Collier saying, great is thy faithfulness, verse 19. Um, the living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. And then... Um, Verse 21, the application of the healing. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he has that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? And then verse, excuse me, chapter 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon. Remember, Assyria is the big dominant empire. Babylon is in the future, but is a major city and part vying with Assyria at this point, trying to be under the shadow of Assyria. King of Babylon sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. 
Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come for me from a, a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, well, there will be peace and security in my days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers. The flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. So, number one, thank God when illnesses, pandemics, and plagues, and other threats to your temporary life provoke you to pivot, pray, and prioritize eternal life with God. Now, that's a shocker. That is not the way we think in our flesh. So if you get anything out of the sermon today, I hope you get point number one. We are commanded in the Bible, including 1 Thessalonians 5, to give thanks in all circumstances. Are you doing that? I know all kinds of people who are Christians, as well as people who call themselves Christians, who the minute anything bad happens to them, they're in an outrage over it or freaking out. And the Bible is saying, give thanks. Because you know what? You know what? Romans 8, 28 says, right? God works through and in all circumstances for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. So thank God, and sometimes some of us really need it, right? To get spiritually recentered, to actually pivot to God. When something bad happens, an illness, maybe a grave illness, maybe pain, Maybe even a plague, like what apparently has hit Hezekiah. Possibly bubonic plague. We don't know what's going on here with these boils, right? Or, nowadays we call them what? If they're really big and global. A pandemic. Thank God for waking you up with the pandemic. If it calls you to pivot to God and to pray and prioritize, because is this life what it's all about? If this life is what it's all about, we're in trouble, baby. We're all turning into dust pretty soon. If my prayers are focused on, let me uh, be lively dust for a few more days, that's not a really big vision, is it? It's not, that's not a faith vision that comes from God, right? So thank God. When a pandemic or an illness or whatever, whatever pain or threat hits you, provokes us to pivot and to pray and prioritize eternal life with him. Give thanks in all circumstances, 
for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Thank God for those pivot moments. You know what? I've pastored a lot of people, and most of them, they pray a lot more when trouble is at the doorstep. They talk to God a whole lot more and get a lot closer to God when all the other little distractions and ball games and parties and everything else just don't seem to heal. Hmm? So even if God is going to give you a few more years, set your house in order. I mean, that command that comes first to Hezekiah is applicable to you. Literally in the Hebrew, it's command your house. Heads of households, this is talking to you. But understand now, just let me pull back for a minute now. Remember, Hezekiah is the head of the house of David. So he's not just talking about a family, like we talk about families. He's talking about a whole dynasty that connects with the covenant that God made with David. And if you're sitting here saying, well, Martin, that's kind of good, and I get the application about the prayer, but all this other ancient history about Hezekiah is irrelevant to me. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God? Yes? Is it relatively important to you that he was born? What do you think? Yeah? Go to Matthew 1. Hezekiah line through Joseph. The royal lineage, the legal claim of Jesus on the throne of Israel comes directly through Hezekiah. And at this point, when Hezekiah is told you're going to die, order your house, get your house in order, he doesn't have an heir. Manasseh's not born yet. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? This is a big deal in the Bible. You want to talk about a a, an axis point in the story of scripture. I kind of laid out a whole bunch to you. Well, there's one more right there. That's a huge axis in the whole story of the coming of the promised Messiah. Uh, number two, learn from the good Hezekiah. We have a good Hezekiah and a bad Hezekiah. He's never truly a great Hezekiah because all what happens, what goes down with him when he's under the gun, causes us to question, as it might with ourselves, am I being faithful to God's law and tearing down the high places and restoring worship in Jerusalem because I'm just totally sold out to God? Or am I worried about good graces from God and the results of good graces from God? Is it the product you're after or the giver? This is always a spiritual question right before us. Why are we praying? Why are we so interested in God? Is it for stuff he's going to give us? Or is it him? This is a basic question, right? And, and, and what happens with the bad Hezekiah causes us to question even exactly how good was the good Hezekiah. But anyway, we can learn from the fact that he doesn't stop praying, right? The word of the Lord through Isaiah is you are going to die without an heir. And the whole Davidic covenant and line is in question. We remember, we saw back in Ahaz, it's all been judged, right? So maybe it's coming to bear right now, and we're not going to get a Messiah, and Jerusalem's going to fall to Assyria. No, thankfully, what does Hezekiah do? Maybe not the ultimate saint. He, he confesses in his psalm that he was worried about himself, right? Well, what does he do? What should you do? 
Keep praying. Do not stop praying. Until you're healed and until you're totally healed in heaven. Now notice here, though, that what the Bible teaches is, and it applies here to Hezekiah, this prayer doesn't come out of the blue, right? Hezekiah has a life of faithfulness. As I've said, it may not be totally pristine, but he talks to God on a regular basis. Do not wait, please, to talk to God until you're in total crisis. I've known people who try to do that. Uh, God, uh, uh, yeah, I know I've kind of blown you off for the last 10 years, but I really need your help right now. There is a life of faithfulness that Hezekiah can refer to in his prayer about how he's been faithful and done what the law requires. And by the way, he's citing back to Deuteronomy on this as under the law, as the king who's been faithful to the law. That, that, that's, that language is going on in his prayer. And it's really looking all the way back to David and David's relationship. And notice when God answers the prayer, what does he call Hezekiah? Why does Hezekiah have special stature? Because he's the son of David, right? God recognizes his father, David. Guess what, Christian? You've got the greater David that God recognizes when he looks at you. You belong to Jesus, the ultimate son, right? So um, James 5, 16, the prayer of a righteous man or righteous person has power as it is working, great power. Don't stop praying and pivoting to God now. Let me give that as a pastoral suggestion to you for what may come in the future. Grow now while there is time in a living relationship with God. The prayer of the righteous person, the one who is right with God, has great power as it is working. Ultimately, of course, all that comes through Jesus and his spirit working in us. And then number three, learn from the bad Hezekiah. Isaiah chapter 39. Can it get more humiliating than that? I remember when I was in, I'm guessing that children, at least in, in private schools now, read through the Bible in elementary school and early into middle school. I remember when I, when I started at Presbyterian Day School, which is actually connected with Second Presbyterian, where Dean is coming from, and I switched and we were reading through the histories in, in the Old Testament in fifth grade. And I remember hitting this, and even I, as a fifth grader, knew that this was ridiculously foolish for Hezekiah to be doing this, showing off everything he had, all his armaments, all his riches, to, um, to Babylon and to the Babylonian envoys. What's going on is they are reaching out to him to join them in a coalition against big bad Assyria. Now God is gonna save Jerusalem from Assyria because he's promised that. But now he's saying, and the prophecy is clear, because you have been so foolish and so stupid. I mean, I have, I, I've committed to uphold you. And in a few years, Assyria is not gonna take you down, but you will go down. Your heirs will go down in the future to Babylon. And, and what is Hezekiah's response? 
It's the response of most of our so-called leaders and politicians and even spiritual, so-called spiritual leaders nowadays. Well, at least nothing happened to me. Really? <laughs> Your heirs will be eunuchs serving as slaves in Babylon? Well, at least I'll die in peace. So you see why this is the ultimate jarring juncture that sets up the turn the page to Isaiah 40. God's mercy is so great, but God is going to have to come. God himself, prepare a highway for the Lord to come, to save us. No human supposed savior, including even the best of the kings of Jerusalem, even Hezekiah can save you. He's a failure. So, learn from bad Hezekiah. Don't stop praying. Seek God's counsel. Well, he healed me. Life is good. I can party now. Party with the Babylonians. No, stop. Talk to God and ask for his wisdom. Should you really be getting in bed with the Babylonians, what do you think? What do you think God would say to him? No. And what Second Chronicles chapter 32 tells us is a really stark reminder, right? Second Chronicles. 32, 31. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him, this is to Hezekiah, to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself. Did you hear that? God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. The Bible, including the New Testament, repeatedly tells us God gives us tests so that we can be proven faithful. But notice this, he's left to himself and he's got a choice. Is he wowed by the Babylonians or does he turn to God? Don't be wowed by the Babylonians. Turn to God. Pray without ceasing. Don't stop praying. As Culberson says, keep praying, but be thankful that God's answers are wiser than your prayers. And know this, that even healing on this earth is just an interim blessing. It's the healing that is to come that is the real healing. Isaiah prophesies this in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. God is going to eliminate tears. You know how Hezekiah is crying? Isaiah 25 says, God will eliminate all tears. And what do we read in Revelation? He will wipe away every tear, right? Revelation, quoting Isaiah, quoting God and his promise for you. Until that day, don't stop praying. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever, amen. Let's pray together. Lord, hold us in your care and inspire us. And Lord, we give thanks when you provoke us and put things in our lives that provoke us to pivot to you. Let us not become lax in the good days. But be aware that, Lord, you are inviting us to turn back to you, even then. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.